When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great rescue. We are in episode 58 of Exodus, God's Great Rescue, and we've been talking about the tabernacle, we've talked about the tent of meeting, we've talked about the courtyard, all that stuff. And now we're going to get into the priesthood uh, because this is, I think it's kind of a fascinating topic. And, um, and well, let's just get into it and start reading and then we'll see where it leads us. So this is now Exodus chapter 28, beginning of verse 1, where God is telling Moses, have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Let me just stop here for a second. Um, remember, Moses at this point is about 85 maybe, 80 to 85, somewhere in that area. I think he was in his 80s when they left, and I don't know how far after this is. And Aaron is the older brother, so Aaron's even really older. If Aaron is, um, let's say Aaron, let's say Aaron's 85, that means his nephews, Moses's nephews are probably 65, somewhere in there. I mean, 65 to 70. So they're not spring chickens either. Uh, they have a lot of respect in Israel. And so they're going to come and they're going to serve as priests. Now, this is where we talk about priests. So let's just continue reading. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration, so he may serve me as priest. So Aaron is going to serve as probably the, the this is the high priest, and then he's going to have his sons who are going to be priests also. But they're going to elevate Aaron as a priest. Uh, verse 4, these are the garments they are to make, a breast piece, a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. Now, uh, now, so th this is kind of an overall thing. We're going to make these garments for Aaron. He's going to serve as the priest, so his sons. But now we get into some of the specifics about what they're making. And it's just really, really fascinating. So we'll continue reading verse 6. Make the ephod of gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and of finely twisted linen, the work of skilled hands. It is to have two shoulder pieces attached to two of its corners so it can be fastened. Its skillfully woven waistband is to be like it, of one piece with the ephod and made with gold and with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and with finely twisted linen. So um, the ephod is, uh, is made out of, um, it's a square, well, it's a piece on the front uh, and it goes over the shoulder and it goes around the waist uh, and then there's things that go on it, but it's made out of, uh, out of, uh, yarn, scarlet yarn. We would call that wool today, right? 
Um, the yarn comes from probably the sheep and it's woven together and that creates a wool piece. So, and wool, we love wool because it keeps you very, very worn. It's, it's been around for years and years and years. The bad thing about wool is that moths, if moths get into wool, it'll destroy whatever piece. They love to eat wool. That's what moths do. We are in wool season, we're in moth season right now. I have moths flying around the house all the time. They seem to like stay by the door and as soon as they open the door, they go in um, and they fly around. I have a wool suit that I really worry about. I've got it all um, in a package so that the moths can't get in it. And then I've got a cedar hanger in there so that because they hate cedar. So hopefully that is going to prevent the moths from eating my wool suit. But can you imagine spending a lot of money on a wool suit and you go and you pull it out and it's got moth holes in it. That's that's not good. Wool is a very nice material, but it does get moth eaten. And that's why they've moved to cotton and polyester and all sorts of other things. All right. So um, now we're going to go to the ephod. Uh, so let's just listen to what Moses hears from God about the ephod. Make the ephod of gold and of blue purple and scarlet yarn, and a finely twisted linen, the work of skilled hands. It is to have two shoulder pieces attached to two of its corners, so it can be fastened. Its skillfully woven waistband is to be like it, of one piece with the ephod and made with gold and with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and with finely twisted linen. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel in the order of their birth. Six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in gold filigree settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. Make gold filigree settings and two braided chains of pure gold like a rope and attach the chains to the settings. So what, I, what you'll find in this is how detailed God is about what this is supposed to be. The reason why I say note the detail is because God goes into extreme detail as far as what he wants this stuff to do to look like. And the Israelites follow him to the letter because God goes into specific detail. I think when God goes into specific detail, you have to follow God. But when God doesn't go into specific detail, then you do not, not, not you have a lot of freedom. We call that adiaphora. Uh, but right here, this is not adiaphora. This is, this is very specific. Um, so this is the ephod. And whenever you see a picture of the priest from the Old Testament, uh, you'll see the ephod. It's the it's kind of the breastplate. Um, well, here I'll I'll kind of show you a picture uh, for those who are watching. Um, let's see. Yeah. So this is um, this is kind of what the high priest or what the priest would look like. They have a turban on his head. There's a gold thing under the turban that has some Hebrew scripture on it. You've got the breastplate. You've got the 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 stones engraved with the names. Then on the breastplate, you've got stones with each of the 12 tribes. Uh, you've got the sash uh, and you've got the blue scar. You know, you've got all this finely woven stuff. All this stuff is kind of the artist's depiction of what 
um, what the priest is supposed to look like. And the pre- and they do look like this. Now, why would they... Is it yeah? So why is it so intricately detailed? Uh, and it's God goes into specific detail because it is God's detail on the priest. Whenever the priest wears this and dons it and comes out, he is he is speaking for God. He is in the stead of God. The priest offers sacrifices from the people to God, but also the priest at some level is. Uh, trying to understand what the will of God is uh, for the people. He, he acts as a mediator between God and man. That's what he does. He brings the petitions of man to God and asks for God's help, but he also brings the words of God to the people to, uh, to kind of discern and, and uh, be that conduit between God and man. Well, if you're going to do that, you have to look the part you have to adorn yourselves with things because you're speaking. At one level, you are speaking for God. So the people have to believe, understand, um, give uh, allegiance to the priest, and particularly the high priest, that, that this person is placed there by God and is speaking at some level for God. Um, in modern-day Christianity, uh, one of the largest... Um, well, the largest Christian denomination out there is Roman Catholicism, a billion people. And the person at the very, very top of that is the Pope. And there have been times when the Pope says, I'm speaking in the stead of God. It's called ex cathedra. It means sitting on the throne. And when the Pope feels as if he is speaking the absolute, true, un uh, altered words of God that will never change, then he speaks ex cathedra. And that is a lot of power. That is a tremendous amount of power. If you say that you speak for God, that gives you a great amount of power. Now, during the Reformation, Martin Luther uh, felt that that power in one person was inappropriately and misplaced. So, he said the power that comes is not from a person, but from a book, and that book being the Word of God and, and the sacraments of God. So for, for Luther, he said the power is no longer in one person, but it's in word and sacrament. Those are the two places where power, if you will, re- relies, rests. It's, it's in the word and sacrament. Uh, but in the Old Testament, it was definitely the... Um, the priesthood that fulfilled this function. All right, we may get into that some more, but let's just keep reading because it goes on. This is verse 15 of Exodus 28. Fashion a breast piece, be, uh, fashion a breast piece for making decisions, the work of skilled hands. Make it like the ephod of gold, of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and of finely twisted linen. It is to be square, a span long, and a span wide, and folded double. Then mount four rows of precious stones on it. The first row shall be carnelian, chrysolite, and beryl. The second row shall be turquoise, lapis lazuli, and emerald. And the third row shall be jacinth, agate, or, yeah, agate and amethyst. The fourth row shall be topaz, onyx, and jasper. So mount them in gold filigree settings, There are to be 12 stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal 
with the name of one of the 12 tribes. So if you can see this, this um, breastplate, I guess you could call it, uh, and it has uh, 12 stones and, and God actually says what the 12 stones are. And so they have to find these stones, they have to fashion these stones into this breastplate. And you can, uh, you can kind of imagine what that must have looked like. Um, the first row has carnelian, chrysolite, and beryl, and there's four rows. So each of the stones is is described by God which stone. Then it's engraved with the name of a tribe of Israel, one of the sons of Jacob. Um, that is a lot of detail. It reminds it every time the priest wears that then, he is reminded, once again, the people are reminded of who that priest serves. And he serves the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 sons of Jacob. That who, that's who that is. It's, it's the Lord. It's Yahweh. It is the God who came to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons. So there's absolutely no question as to who the God is and who the tribes of Israel are. Uh, and that is to be maintained even as they're in this nomadic time. All right, uh, we'll continue reading verse 22. For the breastpiece, make braided chains of pure gold like a rope. Make two gold rings for it and fasten them to two corners of the breastpiece. Fasten the two gold chains to the rings at the corners of the breastpiece and the other ends of the chains to the two settings, attaching them to the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front. Make the two gold rings and attach them to the other two corners of the breastpiece on the inside edge next to the ephod. Make two more gold rings and attach them to the bottom of the shoulder pieces on the front of the ephod, close to the seam just above the waistband of the ephod. The rings of the breastpiece are to be tied to the rings of the ephod with blue cord, connecting it to the waistband so that the breastpiece will not swing out from the ephod. Um, whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart, on the breastpiece of decisions as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Also put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastpiece so that they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. So now we have this complete picture. Uh, we have the ephod, we have the breastpiece, we have the, the thing with the, you know, the stones, we have um, all of this that is there, but we now get also the Urim and the Thummim. Now, what are the Urim and the Thummim? Well, it's interesting that you should ask. It apparently is two stones that were used by perhaps Moses, perhaps Aaron, to make decisions, to kind of discern the will of God. They were used, um, and they're close to the heart. There are these, there are these two stones that are, that are close to the heart, and they help uh, Aaron, in this case now, make decisions as to discern the will of God. It, it's a form of, if you would call it a form of, should I call it divination? It's, it's oracle, it's divination, it's discerning the will of God. Like if you've got this on your heart, then all of the people say, okay, you are speaking in the stead of God, you've got all this, God is with you, so we are looking to you for answers to help make decisions. What could some of those decisions be? 
Well, it might be, it could be legal decisions, but it could be like the legal decisions are, can be covered, right? Moses was doing those. It's it's the theological decisions. It's the 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 decisions that Moses is going to make, you know, using the Ten Commandments. That's one thing. But as further decisions need to be made about, you know, about things that people are talking about, there are times when you really, really desperately want to know the will of God. For example, should you make a treaty with another nation? Should you pick up and should you move? Uh, you know, big major decisions for the tribe of Israel. Uh, those would then come to the high priest, and the high priest would have the Thummim and the Urimim, Urimim, the Urim and the Thummim, and and spend time in prayer asking for God's will. Um, that could also be the prophets, right? The prophets are speaking for God. Um, it's the high priest speaking for God. And in some level, Moses, when he was making decisions, uh, you know, having direct conversations with God, he's speaking for the will of God. And the ability to discern the will of God is something that the New Testament church actually talks about. In Ephesians 4.11, Paul says he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. Uh, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. But he talks about prophets. So what is a modern-day prophet in the Christian church? It's someone who reads God's Word and continues to read God's Word so that when things happen, he can uh, spend time in prayer in the presence of God, understanding God's Word, and not ever be in violation of God's Word, but say, this is what I think God is telling us to do in the situation. That's a very powerful, powerful thing. Anybody who says that they speak for God has a lot of power in their hands. Um, can you imagine if you could say without a doubt that you speak for God? It's just, it's just a lot of power <laughs> because people are craving God at some level and so when someone says, I speak for God, people crave that. Now, in Protestantism, we believe that that word of God and the sacraments, the, but primarily the word of God, is where God speaks. And that when you are speaking God's word, you are speaking for God. And in, uh, in, in, in closed uh, uh, Protestantism, uh, it's only the Word of God. Like you only speak for God when you're speaking God's Word. That's as far as God gives us is God's Word. Other people say, yes, we have God's Word, but we still need to hear from God. Uh, and so we still look for people who are deeply connected to God and ask them for their wisdom. Um, that is that is other levels of Christianity. So is it limited completely to the Word of God or are there people that... Um, also speak and in in the New Testament in Ephesians 4:11 Paul says that is a gift that some people have evangelists prophets you know of, of, apostles prophets evangelists shepherds teachers that there is still that that level of person in the Christian church that is highly discerning of the will of God um, but they're imperfect nobody is perfect the only perfect person is Jesus the Pope is not perfect. So when the Pope is speaking ex cathedra, that is a man-made Roman Catholic Church thing because no 
man can perfectly speak the word of God. The only perfect person was Jesus. There may be people with more wisdom. There may be people that spend a lot of time in prayer, in Bible study, uh, studying the scriptures, uh, trying to discern the will of God, and they spend their life doing that like a priest uh, would do that, but they are not perfect. Nobody is perfect in that situation. So if that's the case, if nobody's perfect, then nobody perfectly knows the will of God. All we have is God's word. Now, in Protestantism, there are people that say that word is inerrant, that the Bible is inerrant. Well, what does that mean? Um, <laughs> going off to a huge tangent here. Uh, what I believe that means is that in its original form, in the original manuscripts, God had it exactly how he wants it. He spoke to the, through the people that wrote God's, God's word, and it got written down, and that original manuscript of them writing it was perfect. Now, as it gets tr retranscribed and rewritten and, and uh, translated to different languages, uh, it loses a little bit of its perfection because it's now in the process of man, who is an imperfect human being. But it, there's no really major doc doctrinal shift because of you know transmission errors and man errors. I, I believe that it's still very, very valid and uh, we should follow it completely and believe that it is exactly how God wants us to have it. But um, that but no man is is a no man speaks in the stead of, of God today. We've got God's word. Uh, and we've got imperfect people who may spend a lot of time in God's word and spend a lot of time with God. But they're in, in. They're not perfect people. They may make the wrong decision. They may do wrong things. Um, but the older they get, the more wisdom they get, the deeper their faith, the more they study God's word, the less likely that chance is. All right. But in the Old Testament now, they have Aaron. And Aaron is now the Old Testament priest. And his family is the Aaronic priesthood. They are also part of the priesthood. Um, today we have the priesthood of all believers, but back then it was Aaron. All right, he has other priestly garments. Let's let's get into that. Make the robe of the ephod entirely of blue cloth, with an opening for the head in its center. There shall be a woven edge like a collar around this opening, so that it will not tear. Make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn around the hem of the robe, with gold bells between them. The gold bells and the pomegranates are to alternate around the hem of the robe. Aaron must wear it when he ministers. The sound of the bell will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he will not die. Oh my goodness. Make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as a seal, holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord to it to attach it to the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead, and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts of the Israelites, consecrate, whenever their gifts may be. Whatever their gifts may be, it will be on Aaron's forehead continually so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. Weave the tunic of fine linen and make the turban of fine linen. The sash is to be worn of an embroiderer. Make tunics, sashes, and caps for Aaron's sons to give them dignity and honor. After you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them, consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. All right, uh, one little more section. Verse 42, make linen undergarments as a covering for the body, reaching from the waist to the thigh. 
Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they will not incur guilt and die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants. All right. So we have a huge amount of stuff here. And um, God says the turban, the, the thing around the turban, the, the ephod, the breastplate, all of this, it's all dictated by God. And it all has a purpose. It's to give him, it's to uh, give him dignity, give him authority, uh, all of, uh, and, you know, to, uh, to, so he doesn't die when he enters the temple. All of these things he has on him to serve as this priest. Because in the Old Testament, there was a role of priest. And the question that one asks today is, is there still a function of a priest in the Christian church? Um, that, is a, that is a phenomenally good question. We as Protestants say it's the priesthood of all believers, that every Christian at some level is a priest that Jesus ended the priestly time and did not continue that into the New Testament unless it's in the whole entire church, that the whole entire church acts as the priest. It is interesting that in the New Testament, the role of priest is not, is not a role of a New Testament role. Even when I was in Ephesians 4.11, right? He gave some to be apostles some prophets, some evangelists, some shepherds, some teachers. Priest isn't in that list. And if you go to the New Testament, you won't find any priests. The New Testament church in Acts, there's no priest there. There is no priest. So if Scripture and Scripture alone, sola fide, sola scriptura, sola gratia, only Scripture, is your rule and guide, then there is no priest at all. But if you are a New Testament church coming out of a Jewish church that expects a, a priest and kind of starts to act as if there is a priest at some point, then, then you have priests in the church. So that's why the Roman Catholic Church has priests, um, because they act as intermediaries between the people and God. Martin Luther got rid of the priests. Um, he said, the priesthood is all believers, and so we shouldn't be doing priestly functions uh, through one person. If we do priestly functions through one person, it's not because God ordained that person. It's because that person, that authority, that dignity has been given on that person to act in the stead of these things for a particular group of people. That's kind of what we follow. I am not a priest, although I do intercede for the people to God, and I try to discern the word of God for the people. I kind of get placed in that position, but I do it at the authority of the people I serve. It's called the Office of Public Ministry, and that's what I sit in, the Office of Public Ministry. Once I'm no longer in that office, then I am no longer representative between God and man. That goes away from me. In Roman Catholicism, once you're a priest, you're a priest for life. You, you cannot even take away. You could be a priest that murders somebody, does a horrible crime, sitting in prison on death row. You're still a priest. That is never taken away from you. In, in Protestantism, 
It's a mantle that's placed on you, if you will, for a period of time. And then that mantle is taken away and that mantle is placed on somebody else going forward. And then, and then you, you know, and then this is difficult, I suppose, for many Protestant pastors. Maybe that's why they never retire. <laughs> um, is because they enjoy having that mantle of priesthood on them or, you know, that mantle of authority on them. And then when it's, when they leave, I think it leaves a big, huge hole in their heart, um, you know, in their psyche. Maybe it's not in their heart, in their psyche, um, which is just interesting. It's fascinating. All right. I've gone way, way too long here. Um, I, I could go more and more. Should I go more on the high priest? Um, no. Next episode, we'll talk about the consecration of the priest, this kind of ordination. Uh, and we'll talk about more about the role of priests in the Old Testament. So uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Gracious God, um, we pray that you continue to uh, guide us, uh, that that you would not ever leave us. Uh, thank you for this time together and um, watch over us until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.